When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to the Transfer Window, the podcast that brings you the news before it becomes news, as well as expert insight analysis on all the topics you're talking about in football. I'm Ian McGarry and joining me as always is Duncan Castles. Uh, Duncan, there is no other place to start, and indeed it has been the habit of the last few Transfer Window podcasts uh, <laughs> with Manchester United. Um, we have some breaking news for you, as we always like to do on this Monday's edition, and that is that despite the claims um, of some at Old Trafford that everything remains the same regarding um, the Glazers and the position on head coach Ole Gunnar Solskjaer, in fact, there is a unscheduled meeting between Edward and the Glazer family, the key directors, to uh, reflect upon the start of the season uh, which Manchester United have had and decide on if indeed there is needs to be a change of direction, whether that be um, changing the manager or indeed uh, maybe changing the direction of the club with regards to strategy. Uh, Duncan, are you surprised to learn that? Because there has been a lot of recalcitrance regarding um, the defence of Solskjaer, both from the club and without the club, um, and his record, despite the fact he's breaking all the most unwanted records as a Manchester United manager. Look, I think this is very interesting and important information because we've seen the Glazers, we've seen the Glazers' key representative, Edward, were talking to investors recently um, and saying that the club had faith in, in Solskjaer, that they felt uh, the rebuild he had started on um, had begun well, that they had a, had a good summer transfer window um, and essentially telling the people who had uh, the greatest interest in the financial performance of the club um, as uh, related to uh, performance on the field, that they were happy with the way uh, direction was going. Independent of that, you have the club quite aggressively briefing in support of Solskjaer, um, despite what has been an extremely poor start to season, and despite what's been an extremely well, a historically poor run of results um, since March, uh, uh, just at, at the tail end of his first season in charge of the club and at the beginning of this very important second season. But now, what you have an indication of is that actually Ed Woodward and the board are thinking something is wrong here. Um, these results, uh, the the performances, losing to Newcastle United, um, barely managing to get past Rochdale in the League Cup, um, struggling at home against Astana in the Europa League. Um, you know, the, the, the numbers are appalling two wins in the last 13 Premier League games, only scored uh, more than one goal in one game of the last 17 matches, worst league start in over 30 years, um, 11 games without a away win, and a a very difficult fixture list coming up. So I do think that um, maybe this conversation is being had, Duncan, because Manchester's uh, United's next game is against Liverpool. Um, <clears throat> I think the border, even this board, are not so blind as to say that if they were to suffer a heavy defeat against their oldest and most uh, sort of, well, let's say that the, the ones they hate the most as rivals, <clears throat> in, a, in a situation where Liverpool are already eight points ahead of Manchester City in the Premier League title race. Um, Solskjaer since becoming... Um, manager at full time and not being interim has a 25% win rate. That is the lowest record of any Manchester manager in history. 
um, who's been in the job as long as he is. Um, I guess you've got to ask yourself, from the outside, this seems completely illogical for a business and for a football club as big as Manchester United with the second largest revenue in world football. Why would they want to put up with this continuous failure and probably more damning? No real seeds of recovery are being seen, despite Solskjaer's you know, attempts to justify things by saying, yeah, we made it one in seven games, but the performances were there. Mm-hmm. And also, um, I mean, the quote which really jarred on me ahead of the Newcastle United defeat was, this is not the 90s. Well, Ollie, I think all of us who are alive know that it's not the 90s. We don't need you to tell us that. And even putting it in the context that you were using it about, oh, Manchester United were all you know incumbent, all empowered in the, in the 90s. Well, no one, and time stands still for no one. So what is it that you can induce Ole Gunnar Solskjaer to take us back to the 90s or take us into the 2020s that's going to make Manchester United better? I think with, with all these analysis of what the Glazers are thinking, what, what Edward were just thinking, you've got to go back to the basic point is which neither, none of them understand football. So Edward Ward is an investment banker, trained accountant, whose first position at a football club is commercial director of Manchester United. It's his first time being chief executive of a football club. The entire board is full of people who have never worked as directors of football clubs prior to being appointed onto the board of Manchester United. The PLC board has no one with a history of working in a similar position at another club. So it is possible for them to make very bad assessments of what is the, the correct strategy for a club to go down. And it is possible for them to believe that this Solskjaer switch, um, the, the Brexit FC description that some supporters have, have labelled on them of let's sign British players and let's go to younger players and let's um, go back to the 90s, go back to the um, the the model of what Manchester United were supposed to be then, um, that that strategic approach was a clever one. And clearly that Solskjaer has sold that to Edward Wood and sold it to the board. And it's been well received. It's been well received by a good chunk of Manchester United supporters. It's been well received by a lot of the media. A lot of people in very prominent positions have been supportive of it. Um, you see the Glazer um, Woodward club brief of he needs four or five transfer windows, and we're not going to. We don't expect them to be competitive at the top of the Premier League and the Champions League for as, as many as three years. You see that being echoed in the words of some of the most prominent football analysts in British football. So there's been a, a huge degree of buy-in to that strategy. But football is football, and it is always about results. And when the results are so poor, historically poor, and the performance is also um, dropping off at a rate. So even, even Solskjaer, who has, you know, after seven games of the season, was trying to argue that only one of the performances in the Premier League, the West Ham game, was substandard. He said the other six, they were good. Um, and that the points totals, goal scored totals were deceptive. Even Solskjaer didn't try to do that after Sunday's game at Newcastle United. Um, so <laughs> you can't ignore that indefinitely, and the supporters won't ignore it indefinitely. And you've got the factor of Woodward is extremely unpopular with the support. The Glazers are unpopular with a big chunk of the support. You have a Glazers out movement targeting the American owners. Um, targeting the sponsors of the club. These are things that will get the Glazers nervous. And as long as the results on the pitch are as poor as they've been, they cannot avoid that scrutiny. And what's the history of the Glazers post Sir Alex Ferguson? What's the history of Edward Wood as executive vice chairman? When things go wrong, when they, they fail to get Champions League qualification, when the pressure comes on Woodward, the, the fall guy is always the manager. In Solskjaer's case, um, it it always looked a bit of a PR job when he was appointed interim manager because they needed someone in a hurry. 
someone who was malleable to what they wanted to do in terms of football strategy, football operations, and by that I mean recruitment, sales, etc. Um, they found that in Solskjaer. Um, but Solskjaer has proven to come up short in almost every um, aspect of his job, which is to get football results for one of the biggest clubs in the world. And yet, he's not just being tolerated, he's being supported. Also being supported, as you found out this morning, by people like Gary Neville on Twitter, who, um, when you asked a difficult question of the former Manchester right-back regarding his treatment of Solskjaer, uh, in terms of never criticising his tactics, his substitutions or his team selections, um, you quite an interesting response, Duncan. Well, look, Neville's response was that he had been supportive of all, extremely supportive, I think was the, the phrase he used, of all Manchester United managers and that, uh, that the club was a shambles, that, that, um, that Solskjaer inherited the shambles and he needed to be given time. Um I don't think he's wrong on any of those elements apart from the last one. Um, I think he has been extremely supportive of Manchester United managers down the line. Maybe not as supportive as he has been of Solskjaer because there is no criticism there of you know key elements of being a football manager, tactics, selections, training, the kind of things that are food and drink for a person who analyses football, as both of us do, you know, as we, as the two of us in this room do, that's our profession: is to to assess where things are going wrong, going well, and explaining them. And, and that's also Gary Neville's profession. So that there, you, you would, I, I would ask, why so supportive of the managers of one club when not necessarily supportive of the managers of other club? Did he inherit a shambles? Yes, and we've said that on this podcast since the beginning that Manchester United is a severely dysfunctional club with issues, ownership, executive tier, um, internal uh, departments within the club, quality of players. Yes, it's, it is, a, you know, I've said it's probably the hardest job in football to be the manager of Manchester United. Does that mean you give the, the guy who happens to be in the chair at present a free pass? Of course not. No football club can work that way. It's Does he add value? Yes, it's a shambles. See, the manager's role is to improve matters. And I, I, I do not see any trajectory of improvement in Manchester United since Solskjaer became full-time manager, as the club describes it. Um, but you can go back to that appointment that you describe it as a PR appointment in retrospect, it was, it was the interim appointment was a clever move in the, in the sense that they got a, an immediate turnaround in results. They got a bounce from the players. They actually gave themselves a platform in which to start uh, fixing the shambles. The mistake was having got, I think, uh, performance beyond expectation from bringing Solskjaer in as the interim. Then they made him the permanent manager when... It would, you know, again, to anyone who was actually looking at what was going on, to anyone who examined how Sol- Solskjaer's history as a manager, anyone who analysed why the results had got better in, in that bump period, it's pretty clear it wasn't going to be sustained. Um, therefore, you say thank you, Hooligan or Solskjaer. Maybe you give him a, a, a some kind of role within the club. Um, Maybe you could, you know, I've, hear, I've heard people suggest he should have been technical director. I think that's something of a stretch given he's never taken on that role before in his history and recruitment prior to Manchester United wasn't great. But the key thing is appoint someone capable of taking on arguably the hardest manager's job in football. They didn't and now they're paying the, the cost of it and they're paying an even heavier cost because of this it's unprecedented for a club of that dimension to be talking about not being competitive in the Premier League and the Champions League for three years for the manager needing to be given four or five transfer windows to solve matters. And and remember, the last full season of the previous manager, he finished second in the Premier League. We're now looking at a, a club where we're, we're 
where you have a number of people asking, can they even make the top six of the Premier League? Um, what one full season subsequently? That has to be at least partially related to the decisions and the actions of the man who is in charge of the football department. Now, historically, Duncan, um, we're entering what traditionally um, is the graveyard period for managers. And by that, I mean we have two international breaks, one this month, which we're just coming into, another one in November. Clubs always take stock of the start of their season. There are um, always discussions if, if things are not going in the right way. Uh, these are the discussions which are going to be taking place um, at Everton, at Tottenham Hotspur, uh, over these next two weeks, and again probably in November. Let's do what every Manchester United fan would love to do, and that is let's imagine ourselves in that plush office in Mayfair, the headquarters of Manchester United. Uh, there's a room there, which is the boardroom, in which there's a board meeting every month, first Monday of every month. Uh, and there's big video screens with a link up with the Glazers, wherever they happen to be in America, et cetera, et cetera. And there's the whole brainstorming thing. Now, what our information is that the discussion about social will not take place during the official board meeting at Manchester United, but instead it'll be a, a much smaller discussion, informal, um, and they will be taking stock of, right, is the experiment working? What would you expect to be hearing in that meeting this week? Will it all be supportive? Or the very fact that it's being called is it got to be some sense of reflection, criticism and potential for what might be happening in the coming weeks and months? I think, I think the latter. I think the, 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 the fact that the, that the meeting has been called indicates there are concerns and they, they have to re- review the direction of travel and decide whether they want to continue with this. And as you as you, you say, we've got an international break now, we've got another international break coming up next month. We have a, that, that, that final international break of the uh, first half of the season is a very dangerous one for managers because it's the last one before the January transfer window. And Manchester United have already indicated that they want to act in the transfer window. That's another uh, sense that this idea that they've done a good job with the recruitment. Um, Some they, people would say that Solskjaer was very naive to say we were buying a striker in January because effectively he just put the price up by 30%. And we know we mentioned Moussa Dembele yeah. uh, in the Transfer Window podcast as one of the three targets. We know that he was watched by Manchester United scouts playing for Lyon last weekend. So that interest is growing and growing. I understand you've had information as well from people close to Dembele regards to that particular potential. Yes, it's... Uh, Look, you don't want to read too much into Manchester United sending a scout to watch a player because well, it's unusual because you just normally watch on television. Well, <laughs> well, they have the biggest they have the biggest scouting department in English football, and um, you know, look, a story from a a, a technical director at another club of um, a Manchester a Serie A match last season, in which Manchester United managed to send three scouts simultaneously to the same match. He did not appear to, to know of each other's presence at the match and, and, and weren't particularly happy that, to see each other um, at the match. And that probably sums up the dysfunctionality of the football club. Yeah, that's, and that's the, that's the sense of, of recruitment has been a key area. You put in a, a very, very expensive scouting system driven by Ed Woodward get a set, a, a set of city a city recruitment company to organise what's supposed to be the, the best um, scouting network in English football. And you end up with that kind of dysfunction and uh, a scouting department that the previous manager uh, didn't trust the recommendations of, didn't rate highly um, and ended up in conflict with. Um, the key thing in terms of if you see a match, if you see a report that a Manchester United scout has been at a match where a particular player is um, placed, don't get so excited that they're going to sign the player because if they have sixty plus scouts each watching a game every <laughs> at least one game every weekend, that's a lot of players, a lot of players being signed. covered covered live <clears throat> and, and being signed. There is, however, a, a genuine long-standing interest in Musa Dembele, um, and there is an opportunity for. Um, the club to do something there if they want to because Dembele 
is unhappy with his uh, status at Lyon and that this was the season he expected to be number nine. Uh, Memphis Depay has um, been demanding that he play the number nine role, which is fascinating given that he's clearly not a traditional number nine. Um, both players have been scoring. Dembele's actually got an incredibly good scoring rate given he's had limited uh, playing time in, in that position and isn't uh, a guaranteed starter. Um, and his valuation has dropped to a certain degree, again, because he's not, because Dubai is being chosen ahead of him by, by the current coach. Um, United have scouted the players since uh, his time at Fulham. Um, and and seen him as a as a long term potential um, centre forward for them, um, and yeah, my understanding is that that has advanced. Um, it's not got to the stage where um, offers have been made, but the the kind of groundwork you'd expect to be done um, ahead of a deal like that is beginning to happen. Now United do tend to work on multiple targets simultaneously in terms of doing groundwork on signings. So um, you mentioned Timo Werner as a, an alternative on the podcast last week and also the interest in Osman Dembele, who is a different kind of player and we, you would expect to be uh, used primarily off the wing if they brought them in. But key element to all of this is they're looking at doing something in January already, which suggests we're not happy with performances, we need to upgrade further. When you're in that frame of mind to start with, then then you begin asking questions whether the manager. So before we sw- switch attention elsewhere, let's go back to that room with Ed and the good old boys uh, talking about good old Ollie. Um, we mentioned that this is when owners and chairman and chief executives get nervous because a club who's going to invest substantially in a January transfer window, and it appears that United are willing and clearly able to invest. Do they put their faith in all that they will, or do they give them another month until the November international window and then reassess again? Because that's their last chance to get rid, re-employ, and then give a new manager, effectively, the checkbook to say, right, you tell us what's wrong here and you fix it. I wouldn't expect them to do something until they're absolutely sure that they can make it fly with the, with the supporters. Um, I think there's still a sufficient degree of support for Solskjaer. And even if a lot of fans are demanding change and would be happy with a the change, they would take it as an opportunity to criticise Glazer for having him yeah, appointed them full time, so it, it doesn't take much flack away from them. You look at the fixtures coming up; they play Liverpool at Old Trafford, which you'd think they'd much rather have been Liverpool away because if if Liverpool take them apart, which is what you would expect to happen, given the way the two teams are playing at the moment, and they do it at Old Trafford, then that hurts even more. Then they've got a difficult Europa League away game at Partizan the same week. Come back, play Norwich City away. Um, we've seen what Norwich City are capable of doing in certain circumstances. Uh, but even getting a result at Norwich City isn't going to look great. It's kind of a no-win. Well, <laughs> <Villain laughs> score five there, you know. <laughs> yeah. Um, then they have Chelsea in the League Cup um, the next midweek. Bournemouth away. Uh, Partizan again. Europa League, uh, and then Brighton. So there's a lot of banana skins in there. Indeed. There's a lot of away games, and the away record is appalling. Um, so if you, you're asking me to guess what the Glazers would do, I expect they would look at that sequence of results. If the results continue as they are, yeah. then it becomes easy <clears throat> to push the button. Um I think you're right. I think everything's going to be based on results. And in this particular instance, results have been very poor in the first eight matches of the Premier League season. Um, as you've pointed out, the fictionalist isn't kind to them. 
heading up to the, as we said, the November international break and then going into the transfer window uh, in January. <clears throat> Look, if you don't take our, our word for it, people, take the word of David De Gea, longest-serving player and um, someone who, up until about a season and a half ago, seemed to be a man who had no voice. <clears throat> and after the Newcastle defeat, he said, I don't know what is happening. This is the worst it's been in all my time at Manchester United. This is unacceptable. Now, take what you want from that. But David Ayer, a man who, as we said, doesn't speak very often, and yet is so strident in his opinion, which you've got to say reflects very badly on the guy at the top. Now, De Gea just signed a new long-term contract. He wants to win trophies. Maybe he looks at the manager and thinks he doesn't know what he's doing. And I'm not going to commit the rest of my career to a club where I'm struggling to get in the Champions League qualification, never mind competing for the Champions League. Of course, uh, one man who has been mentioned uh, in lots of ways, and uh, not so recently, but certainly last season, is Mauricio Pochettino um, as a next Manchester United manager. Duncan and I had the unexpected and great pleasure of attending uh, Brighton versus Spurs together at the weekend. Uh, in the old days, Duncan, we used to see quite a lot of games <laughs> in each other's company, so it was nice to do that on Saturday afternoon. Um, but distressing, uh, probably for Spurs fans who turned up um, in their numbers, full, full capacity, 3,500, to watch their team lose 3-0 to a club who've won only one Premier League match this season. Uh, a further dent for them in terms of their ambitions and Pochettino again and we talked about this uh, I think some nine days ago on the podcast that players didn't recognise this Pochettino compared to last season he seemed to be distant and aloof his attitude has always been very involved and engaged with his players but hearing more and more that um, you know he's almost losing himself and players are very sensitive to that kind of behaviour it does not inspire the confidence that they need from their leader to actually go out and get results. And clearly, um, they are very much struggling. Now, I think it's taken it maybe a little, one step too far to say he's working his ticket. I don't think any manager ever you know, wants to lose football matches. That's just not on their nature. And Pochettino is a you know, fiercely competitive person and doesn't want to lose. But he does look like a man who's lost his way. That's for sure. I think we saw that at the Amex on Saturday. Uh, we saw in the aftermath um, uh, comments that he made as well. Um, we'll give credit to Brighton in a, in, in a little bit for their performance. But um, I'm just wondering if, even if, and we know that Levy, Daniel Levy would be loath to sack Mercy Pochettino, but if he was, let's just say, was available in some way, i.e. he and Levy agreed that his time had come to an end at Tottenham, would Manchester United actually employ Pochettino at this point given the trouble they're in with Solskjaer Look long standing interest in Pochettino um, Pochettino developed his his status as being one of the most um, desirable managers to a point in world football over a good number of years of Premier League performance you can't delete all of that away it exists he's done what he did with Tottenham he made them the club they currently are, he helped build the squad they are, the, the way of playing football. He built that club into what they are now, which is exactly what Manchester United need. Need someone with a clear vision and with the nous and the ability to operate in the market, but also develop young players, which he's done at Tottenham Hotspur yeah. as well. In many ways, he looks like the key fit. And also, it would be the key fit of Pochettino because he needs a new challenge. I think there are question marks about that because he's not he's not been extremely active in the transfer market in the way that some managers still are. Not it doesn't happen at many clubs, but you'll get managers who drive transfer policy. And Manchester United either need that type of manager or they need a technical director in combination with an excellent coach and uh and a leader of a team. Um and obviously, if Pochettino was um, to become available in the market, Manchester United are going to look at that. Um, and, and I think regardless of what is happening this season at Tottenham, he would be a popular appointment. There would be obviously big question marks given this, what we see on the pitch. 
what we see at Tottenham at the moment. But I don't think many people would complain if the Glazers managed to secure him. I think he's the one that they could make fly. You talked about, you know, sacking Poch, you know, sacking Solskjaer. Could he make that fly? But I think bringing Poch in would probably be the one that most United fans, in fact, I think the vast majority would say, do you know what? He's probably the kind of guy we've been looking for since Ferguson left. They have to upgrade. They have to, they have to come up with a name that will placate the support. And they have to come up with a, a coach who, who's, who has the capacity to do the job. That's the, that's the difficult thing with Manchester United. I think Pochettino would be a risk, for sure. And, and partly I think he'd be a risk because he's, he's shied away from that job opportunity in the past. When, when um, uh, Woodward was preparing to dismiss Louis van Gaal, there were two clear candidates for the job, Mourinho Pochettino. Um, board was essentially split on the merits of the two. Um, Pochettino was sounded out and told people close to him, it's not the right time for me to go to Manchester United. There are problems with that club. I'm not... Uh, I haven't done the recruitment side before. They're looking for a manager to do the recruitment side. Um, I've never had that profile of job before. Um, I know I can see how demanding the Manchester United job would be. I've got a long career ahead of me. My aim is to be coach of Real Madrid. There's no rush. Um, and he, he, he obviously clearly made a good call at that time. You know, his, his star has risen higher and higher by remaining at Tottenham. Um, look, the... the so you've got the Remainer possibly going to Brexit FC, is that what you're saying? <laughs> Potentially. <laughs> so the update from um, <clears throat> people close to the dressing room at Spurs, Duncan, is that while um, clearly things on the field are getting worse, uh, as we saw with our own eyes on that Saturday, nothing's much changed in Pochettino's uh, demeanour or his attitude. He, he remains something of a lost soul in that dressing room. He's um, someone who the players, as I said, can't quite relate to in the same way as they have done in, in much more recent times. Um, there has to come a time when even someone like Daniel Levy, who of course sees Pochettino as unsackable, a bit like the Glazers having their meeting with Woodward this week, has to say, right, something has to change. Some, you know, Whether it's the manager or whether we change um, strategy or whether we do something different in terms of the way they were playing, which I don't actually see as possible. Um, but something has to give in order for things to get better. If they carry on playing the way they were playing against Brighton, <laughs> something has to give. And and that, look, there are clearly issues between the dressing room and Pochettino. Pochettino's clearly not happy with the way things are at Tottenham. There are clearly issues between Pochettino and Daniel Levy over recruitment. So they carry on in this... Poor run, and and you know the the Brighton played exceptionally well. They set up cleverly. Um, they played with high intensity. They got really good performances from Aaron Conley and uh, Stephen Alzati, two of the the the, the players that um, our Friday guest Glenn Murray picked out as the best pros- young prospects at, at Brighton, and how they demonstrated in that game. So their opponents were really good, but Tottenham were, looked lost. Um, there was no intensity to their game. They barely strung four or five passes together for the first half of the match. Um, Pochettino tried a change of formation at half-time, which made a difference for 10 minutes. Brighton scored again, game over. There's no way we're Tottenham getting back into that match. And if you were to, as a complete neutral, we'd never heard didn't know the players, didn't know the strips. If you'd gone into that stadium and someone had told you one of these teams made the Champions League final <laughs> a few months ago, yeah. it wouldn't have been <clears> one <throat> playing in Teal. <laughs> no, indeed, indeed. Um, so, can you carry that on? No, you can't. That can't continue for Tottenham. So, what does Levy do? Does he go to Pochettino and say, you were right, I didn't give you enough in the summer. Let's sort it in January. Uh, you have my support. If you want a certain player to leave, um, I will take a financial hit to make that deal happen. I won't mess you around as as happened with Christian Eriksen or Danny Rose in the summer. Um, you know, it's your call on how we um, build the squad 
and you're getting a bit more money from the bottom line to allow that to happen. Or you can start calculating, I need to change the manager. Um, the, the dilemma, the cheap way of doing it is to change the manager. The dilemma for Levy is he has been working on the basis that Pochettino was going to earn him a lot of money when he moved on to, if and when he moved on to another club, a very significant sum of money. And he's now getting into a situation where he couldn't even be forced to pay him. He could even be forced to pay him him to go. go. Um, You would would have thought if it headed down that line, the two could come to a resolution and just say, shake hands and and leave. But um, I think it's difficult for Levy because it's a cost either way. And if one thing we know about Daniel Levy is um, (laughs) the priority about running the football club is... Is, is financial do not make losses for the in his case for the long term good of the club so he it's it's very different from the Glazers in being financially focused um, because his financial focus is on uh, building a, a stronger squad off the back of um, saving money on the bottom line and investing in stadium and improving the training it's like a, a very long and sustained and calculated um process of, of efficiently using resources rather than um, trying to strip out a profit each year. Uh, but he doesn't, you know, his, his, his standard response when in these dilemmas is which, which, uh, which choice will save the club money. And he's getting to a point where he's going to have to spend or it's going to cost them money either way because something's fundamentally wrong with his manager, his relationship with the manager, and more importantly, with the relationship between the players and the manager. That's the, that's the new element here, which has not happened to Pochettino before in his time in English football. Sometimes um, <clears throat> in football, it seems like the stars align um, to make a decision, which is almost fatalistic, rather than uh, one which is being brought on by the um, responses of the people necessarily in those positions. Now, Duncan, you and I are fortunate enough to um, not just be involved in uh, football on the pitch, but also off the pitch. We have contacts in football business, in the city, etc., etc. I think we've discussed before in the podcast that delivering the stadium for Tottenham was obviously Levy's uh, only major focus for the last two and a half seasons. Um, he's been juggling not buying players and buying players, trying to keep things progressing on the pitch, but at the same time being under huge pressure with a multi-billion pound project, construction project to deliver. We also have been told by numerous sources independently that one of the reasons for the stadium build was it was the last piece in the jigsaw for Tottenham to sell. For Joe Lewis to have his big payday, he's been there more than much more than a decade now, <clears throat> He's invested a lot of money, uh, not just in the in the club itself and in the playing staff, uh, but also obviously in the infrastructure now with regards to the new training ground and now the new stadium. They had the NFL contract. We saw the weekend an amazing uh, pitch change that took place mm. where the NFL pitch was wheeled in effectively. Um, this is a club which is ripe for takeover. Now, I just wonder, and I'm just I'm putting it out there, Pochettino. Is he aware that his position is about to be scrutinised anyway? Because if a new owner comes in, the first thing to do is look at the most important employee at that club, and that most important employee is, is the head coach. And maybe I'm thinking is Pochettino being distracted, along with other factors. I'm not saying that this is his major thing, but maybe along with other factors like not getting what he wants in the transfer window, and therefore feeling a little bit aggrieved and blaming Levy rather than looking at himself and his coaching and his team selections and everything else, motivational thing. And I I mean, players always give that stop response. And I hate when I hear, oh, we don't listen to what goes on, you know, with regards to takeovers and people buying the club. We just have to go on with her. Nonsense. Of course they do. They're employees like everyone else. They want to know what their future is. And these are like some of the highest paid employees in, in the world when it comes to their actual salaries. So, of course, they hear about it and they get worried about it. So if they see their own manager being detached and wondering, they see their chairman being slightly detached from the manager, then they become detached from the players. You're looking at a, a, you know, almost a domino effect of negativity, which ends up in defeats like 3-0 Brighton on Saturday. 
I've not heard anything to the effect that that's what is bothering Pochettino. I think the the simpler take is that we know he wanted to leave. We know he wanted the Real Madrid job. Um, but a, a little bit over a year, a year and a half ago, essentially. If he'd been allowed to leave then, he would have gone. Felt his time at Tottenham was up. He went through another season, um, which was a success, and and the, a lot of status and kudos involved in getting them to the Champions League final. But we know that going into that Champions League final, he was again considering his future, briefing people close to him on about clubs he would be interested, making sure... And demanding Shulian talks with Levy with regards to transfer targets for the following season. Yeah. Before the final. Of, but almost all the way through the second half of the season, he, pre- he was pressuring Levy on on um, adding to the improving the squad substantially to take them to the next level. But he was also allowing the names of clubs, Paris Saint-Germain, Juventus, um, Real Madrid, even Manchester United, to be leaked out as places he was interested in going and also the idea that he might take a sabbatical and he might step away at the end of the season. So, conclusion, a year and a half ago he wanted to leave. Six months ago in the build-up to the Champions League final, he was thinking seriously about leaving. He was persuaded to stay, um, I think partly because of the euphoria of getting to the Champions League final and persuaded to stay on the basis, I will give you some of what you want in the market. And he, let's be clear, he expected to get a lot more than what was very significant spending by Daniel Levy Tottenham's standard in the summer. Remember the gross spend and transfer fee commitments higher than any other Premier League club, but after years of of not investing there. That, the, the combination of factors persuaded them to do another season. Another, this other season has started badly and, and as we've just been saying, it's got into a worse position than we have seen during his entire time at the club and a position that you wonder to what extent it's resolvable. And, and you know, there are footballing elements here. It's not just about the, this battle with Levy and transfer resources. So the decision to make Harry Winks central to a new form of uh, play, which Pochettino felt they needed to adopt to win trophies and wanted implemented. Um, that was Pochettino's decision to make links that his, his holding midfielder. Yeah, midfielder, yeah. And, you know, Brighton at the weekend, Winks is dropped, um, Eric Dyer starts, um, <laughs> looks like he'd never played the position before. Winks comes on at half time, you get that, that's, that, Switch, I think, mainly because of the change in formation, kind of unsettled Brighton, um, who were playing a 4-4-2 and um, attacking, putting a lot of pressure on uh, Tottenham's back line. Uh, Brighton score and then um, Winks disappears in the game too. And, uh, and Tottenham disappeared essentially as a, as a creative... Um, a compelling football team, and that's that has one way or another that has to be solved. Um, and it's it's quite hard to see the solutions coming at present with all of these issues in the background, mm. particularly the issue with addressing them. I think that's the, the key one. Well, you did tell us last Friday on the transfer window, Duncan, that um, Pochettino was planning a, a wee busman's holiday to Qatar during the international break, which of course Big Tam Tickler may wouldn't be too pleased about because it looks like he's on his shoulder. Um, so just uh, just flagging up to you that we're expecting you to deliver on whether or not uh, he was allowed to make that trip over the next <laughs> few days. <laughs> so people listening out on Wednesday and Friday will be putting Duncan on the spot. I will remember to call my <clears throat> friends in Qatar and ask them. And uh, people, VR will not be used on this decision. There will be no reviews. Now, a very interesting weekend at the top of the table, Duncan. Very contrasting fortunes and results and performances, indeed, for Manchester City and Liverpool. Um, City, uh, we had a quick, uh, as you do because we're very professional, we did a a secondary session of analysis on Manchester City before (laughs) uh, recording the podcast. And it looked to us like um, they've completely lost their way of playing, mainly because they can't trust their own defence. 
they instead of playing a high press, um, high intensive passing game, they were starting with the ball long. Um, they were being caught out in possession, which is something City never happens to them either. And they end up losing 2 0 to Wolverhampton Wanderers. Um, what is going wrong for Pep Guardiola? Well, they, they were making huge. Um, mistakes in their passing and, and risking the ball as well which okay. is again very unlike them giving the ball to Wolves um, in situations that were they were one on one against their defenders and you know for all Manchester City's quality the way Guardiola has them set up to play which is to flood players into the opposition third of the field leaves them very susceptible on the counter attack and and hence the strategy of, of fouling opponents early uh, to prevent that. They don't usually give the ball away passing. You know, they, they have the highest passing accuracy in the league. They pride themselves on it. Once you get to a situation where you flooded the opposition's third with bodies and you pass the ball direct to the opponent's forward with just one of your non-primary choice defenders to beat, um, you're probably not going to get out of that game without conceding goals. And 2-0, two goals didn't flatter Wolves. They had the opportunity to score three or four goals in that game. Um, I think Wolves, were, that was always going to be a difficult match for Manchester City. Even with their, uh, if they'd had a full-strength 11, it would be a difficult match because it's a team that have caused, them, brought a coach and a team that have caused them problems for years now. Remember, um, Wolves almost knocked uh, Manchester City out of the League Cup um, while they were still in the Championship. So it, it was a it was a fixture where you you thought something like that could happen going into it. Um, he has now a major major problem to solve because uh, Fernandinho, who has been moved into the centre of defence um, because he felt he was a more reliable defender, is actually causing problems positionally and um, I think also with a lack of pace there Otamendi has it seems lost confidence Kamikaze tendencies I think judging by some of the tackles he was putting in in the wrong positions against Wolves Kyle Walker in Guardiola's bad books again um, <laughs> it's a fascinating time to see what happens at, at City because Guardiola is not used to chasing Situations he he managed last season to get back, but remember that a lot of that was given to him by Liverpool's mid-season collapse is the wrong word, but they 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 got a substantial lead over Manchester City and then started dropping points on a regular basis. So they opened the door to Manchester City to get back in, and and a strong Manchester City, probably the strongest ever Manchester City. But given his defensive problems already, Duncan, uh, again, for this, again, going into the Wolves match, to play Jacques Cancelo at left-back out of position mm. seemed to cause more problems than it solved. And with Kyle Walker, again, there being a lack of confidence in him, you know that Otamendi is mistake waiting to happen and that Fernandinho is fine as long as they're a goal up or 2-0 up at centre-back because he can play his normal game of passing the ball out from the back and taking his time and facing play. What Fernandinho can't do, as we saw against Wolves, is chase back. He's too slow. Um, so, playing Cancelo seemed like a very un-Pep Guardiola decision. The man who doesn't like to risk anything suddenly takes a massive risk mm. by playing a player out of position and an already... Who's un- still adapting to the Premier League. In already unsteady defence. You know, you can... Maybe, ima- did he underestimate Wolves? Because I wouldn't with Nuno Spirito Santo, Chuck. You can imagine John Cancelo's thoughts about having barely played for the first part of the season, having people questioning why he's not in the lineup yet, being well, put into a game like that out of position. He's been testing my son since they went shopping together, saying these things. Why am I not playing? What's going on? <laughs> why are you playing me at left back? <laughs> um, I, I'm, I'm intrigued to see how Guardiola responds to this, particularly if Liverpool managed to sustain this run of results, which are... I mean, let's face it, the run results Liverpool are on is deceptive. They have not been comprehended, they're not played in a way that you would normally expect a team to take maximum points from eight games. In a number of those games, it's been a tight margin, a call that's gone in their favour again at the weekend. 
um, a very, very questionable penalty. Oh, I thought it was. It was, kick, oh, it was, it was contact there. There, there was, there was contact, but um, Manny falling to the ground immediately to take advantage of it. If you look at the way the Premier League is refereed at the moment, it, it's not the case that you automatically get a mm. penalty. With but contact. is that Anfield Duncan? He knows he's got to get a penalty. So some people would argue, and uh, PG went all. Surely not they wouldn't say. <laughs> um, so there is that opportunity in that. You can see Liverpool dropping points because they're not they're not as strong as they could be. They're not as domineering as their um, their their points total suggest. But if they don't, um, City in this state, how long can Guardiola deal with that? Um, you know, we know this is a man who does not take failure well. We know he's a man who uh, who will find excuses for things going wrong and um, wants to deflect away from areas where he's underperformed. Um, will he tolerate chasing a Liverpool side, um, being substantially behind them, having even more focus than ever before on the Champions League because that's what's going to happen if he can't get the Premier League title race back into a manageable form it's going to turn into well Pep Guardiola you were brought to this club to win the Champions League you haven't even got vaguely close to winning the Champions League yet this season it's the only major title you can win let's see you do it against the wishes of your own fans obviously (laughs) as he even said himself I don't understand why they don't like to win the Champions League um How that develops, fascinating. Yeah. yeah. Well, there's a transfer window, as you all know, that said, we coined the phrase, it's Liverpool's title to lose. But um, Duncan's new Bezzy, uh, Gary Neville, went one further yesterday and said, Liverpool can't lose the title from here. Maybe he forgot that Liverpool were seven points ahead last season in a much later stage of the season and said he turned that over to win the the title and they're eight points ahead <clears throat> okay City have got some more personnel problems than they certainly had last season but that's a very bold claim um, but taking on Duncan Castles is also very bold so maybe he was feeling a bit brave as a I think, it, I think it was said at quite an emotional moment for him wasn't it after watching the the catastrophe at Newcastle United um, yeah going to Newcastle is never never a good look <laughs> It's clear it is Liverpool's title to lose. It's down to them. They now have. They can now afford to go to Manchester City, play two Premier League games against them, lose both of them, and still have um, a two-point advantage. Uh, so, and they should. Every other team in the league, um, they're easily capable of beating. Whether they can do it every time as they have been doing. Not necessarily, but they are um, strong, strong favourites in a way um, we haven't seen, I think, in the Premier League era. Well, as we said, Solskjaer was the one who said, it's not the 90s, but um, some of you remember a great song which was No More Heroes Anymore. Uh, We're going into heroes and villains now, and there's too many heroes from last weekend to fit them all in, so I'm going to give a big shout out to Aaron Connolly, became the first teenager to score in the Premier League this season, two exceptionally well-taken goals for Brighton, mm-hmm. and someone who I think has got a very promising future, uh, the new Scolzi, Matt Longstaff, uh, for his goal against his uh, ex-club, uh, <laughs> if he's living the life of Benjamin Button, and uh, also to Mason Mount as well at Chelsea, uh, who's contained his great form as well. So the future seems to be there's no fear with the young ones. Uh, Duncan, I'm going to ask you to name your villain first, having just given us a list of heroes, but of course I'll keep my own specific one for the final word. Um, well, I'm, I'm intrigued at this new policy of calling everyone who does something half decent in the in the league a hero for the week. We can't allow <laughs> this weekend. to continue. Of the weekend, we can't allow this to continue. Of the weekend. <laughs> <laughs> my villain uh, will be uh, Jurgen Klopp. Um, why in this instance? Well, despite the, the uh, pleasure he had of, of getting that um, dubious penalty 
to win a very tough match at home. Against the best coach in the league. <laughs> against a former Anfield legend. Um, uh, can, you against a, Le- can you be a former legend? I think he, it, I think is the legendary status kind of if it's bestowed then it's infinite surely I think that, he, that is exactly what Brendan Rodgers is he's a former legend he was a legend for a very short period and then had harsh. that status you're revolt. always so harsh on that <laughs> but Klopp then comes out of that game and decides that um, his focus in the press conference must be to go after one of the another of the young English players um, who have been doing well this season which is Hamza Chowdhury um, for a tackle he made on Mo Salah, which was uh, definitely a reckless tackle. Um, by no means the worst tackle uh, you would have seen even in the weekend. Uh, it caused an injury because he, he, he landed on the, on the back of Salah's leg. He shouldn't have gone in for the tackle. But um, Klopp went out of his way to, um, to advise Chowdhury and how he should be playing, saying it was as dangerous as hell I don't want to cause the boy any problems, but he has to... Brackets, I, brackets I do, because I'm, I'm making the point of this. And, and specifically, I will cause him problems and make turn it into a story. And, and I know a lot of people feel that was out of order in close part. And I think it's particularly out of order when you look at the way he has his team playing. So he, his team are set up to go in aggressively on tackles. They play on the edge of the rules. It's a major part of their, their tactical strategy. If you watch their yeah, some of their, their key champion, the key Champions League game, the semi-final against Barcelona, home in Anfield, the way they were tackling in that match is borderline reckless. So for the manager to then go and and target one of the opposition players and, and advise him on how he should be playing, if it was you know, if it was Pep Guardiola, I would have more time for that because for all the fouling Guardiola has his team doing, he very rarely has his team. Um, endangering opponents health whereas there is an element of that in the way that Liverpool play and I think if you talk to players who play against them they'll tell you we don't get enough protection on on um, on their pressing their, their hyper pressing they, they use to, to strip the ball off us Now we are not in any way shape or form um, inferring that what Klopp said had a distinctive influence on what then happened afterwards but it doesn't help Duncan when a manager makes inflammatory, well, uses inflammatory language, dangerous yeah. as hell. And then the connection to the fact that Chelsea receives racist, vile abuse on social media from Liverpool fans as a result of the challenge. And who've, fans have obviously heard or read what Klopp said. As I said, I'm not saying that Klopp was intentionally stoking those flames, but I think sometimes I've got to just take a little step back and think, what are the possible consequences for me? He says he doesn't want to get the line in trouble. Next thing you know, um, Lesser reporting this to the police because the, if the abuse was so vile and sometimes, and in some ways, violent as well. If you use a phrase about a, a tackle in football that's as dangerous as hell, that's a very strong thing to say. Yeah. You know, and anyone who's involved in professional football knows what a really dangerous tackle is. And that was not a really dangerous tackle. No. It was an ill advised when it was reckless. But he wasn't going out of his way to. to he wasn't try trying to injure. injure Salah. No, there was no, no stamp. There was no, you know, intention of injuring Salah. Yes, Salah is a very quick, very mobile player. Chowdhury was just trying to stop him on his tracks, and as you said, it looked worse. Well, it became worse because he landed on Salah as he went. That's down. what caused the injury. And that's yeah. what caused. It. But thankfully, we hear today that Scala's had a scan. They don't expect as a serious injury, so we, uh, get well soon, Mo. My hero was one of Mo's teammates. And those of you who remember vinyl will accuse me of sounding like a broken record, but James Milner, honestly, yeah, just let's get together and have babies, mate. It's just the penalty. So much pressure. 20 million years of failed history in winning titles for Liverpool, whatever you want to call it. And he's the man that steps up, calmly puts the ball in the net. And how does he celebrate? He folds his arms out to say, look, that's what Jimmy Milner does. Okay, uh, and also I do okay. beseech you if you haven't seen the pass from Manny's goal where he knocks it 50 yards he doesn't have to break stride it had an, an arc on it as well that you know the pre-delarc would, would have been get really really jealous of uh, perfect in this execution can we ask Kaiser Duck to do a, a photo fit of what a Ian McGarry James Milner baby would look like 
Ooh, I'm not sure about that. Maybe I'll, maybe I'll take that back. If you're hearing this conversation, listeners, then it's not been edited properly. <laughs> so thank you very much for listening. Uh, as always, please do continue the debate with us. Uh, at Transfer Podcast is the Transfer Windows official Twitter account. Duncan Castles is at, surprisingly, Duncan Castles. And I'm at, not surprisingly, at Garbo SJ. Uh, get those um, tweets to us. Let us know what you're thinking of the podcast. Let us know what you think of what we've been talking about. Um, let us know what you think about Gary Neville's exchange with the great uh, graduated doctor uh, this Monday morning. Uh, we will be, of course, back on Wednesday uh, with the Wednesday Q&A, your questions answered. In the meantime, please, as you know, log on to iTunes, give us a five-star review. The audience expands and we all have a much better time, even maybe even better than we've had this morning. So uh, we shall see you through the window on Wednesday. Until then, thanks for listening. <laughs>